Correct. Known as the father of modern orthodoxy by some. Well, let's, I want to delve into who he was and really today spend some time just more broadly not on what he says about Parshas Noach, but more of who he was as a person, what he accomplished. And the only way to understand Ray Salavechik, I believe, is to understand where he came from. That is, not just as he grew up in Kaslavich in Russia, but who his family was. Because he was someone who ultimately saw his role after ordaining thousands of students, more, probably more students than almost anyone else, in writing many, many, many works, he saw his role as transmitting the Mesorah, transmitting the tra- tradition. He often spoke about himself as a simple Malamid, a simple teacher. Malamid connotes, you know, the, the, the rabbi in town who teaches his little kids. That's how he, he self-described himself. When in fact, again, he was the Rosh Hashiva in Yeshiva University. He gave thousands of shiurim. He wrote many, 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 many articles, many, many works. But he saw himself as just a continuation in the Mesorah at large, as in the Mesorah at large from Harsinai, passing down through him. And when he spoke, he often spoke about when he was teaching, it wasn't just him in the room teaching, but Maimonides was with him, and all the other greats of the Mesorah were with him teaching, again, a continuation, but also, in particular, a continuation of what we call the base brisk, the house of brisk, which was his family, and the unique Mesorah that his family, his family passed on to him, and he passed on to his students. So, in order, again, to understand right salvage, we have to go back in history, start with, to see the first of the sources, this is all pictures, so even those who, here who can't read, myself, can understand. If you see on the far left, there's a picture of a man with a lot of payas, a very dour-looking person. That's the Beis Halevi. The Beis Halevi was Rabbi Yosef Dov Salavechik, the first. This is Rabbi Salavechik's great-grandfather and his namesake. He became the rabbi in Brisk. He was the first rabbi, in a way, in, in Brisk. And he was his great-grandfather. And oftentimes he references him. He was a very important person in, in the world of uh, Lundus in terms of learning. He had a son. His son's next picture over is Rav Chaim Salavechik. Anyone here of Rav Chaim as he's known in the world of yeshivas? Who was Rav Chaim? So Rav Chaim was the... He was a, he was a rabbi at one point in Volozhin, which was the the mother of all yeshivas, that was the, one of the first yeshivas, and then eventually there was a split, and he ends up in Brisk, where he has a small little group of students who he teaches. He is known as the father of the Brisker method of learning. What's the Brisker method of learning? Anyone ever hear of the Brisker method of learning? And why it's so important? So again, in the world of Brisk, and this is Lithuania, if you want to know where Brisk is, if you turn the page over, there's a picture. Um, I took a, a picture of from the Golden Age of Lithuania Yeshiva, a book that came out a couple of months ago. In this, you see all the major towns in, uh, in, in um, mainly Lithuania and Poland, uh, and you can see where all the yeshivas was. So there's an arrow point to this little, little town called Brisk, right outside of Grodno, next bordering Poland, that was the brisk we're going to keep constantly referring to. In the world, in the, in the larger world, it's a little know-nothing town. Who, who knows? Who cares? Now, in our world, in the world of yeshivas, this is like the center, the citadel of Torah. The brisker method is as follows. And it's actually, it's, it's, the, the approach was that instead of looking just at, at the text and saying, okay, fine, the Gemara says as follows, it's let's, con- let's conceptualize what the Gemara is saying. And perhaps when I start giving you examples, you're like, oh, wait, I do that in my shirim all the time. Instead of saying, okay, fine, these two people disagree over the following. You know, do you stand or sit during Havdalah? 
you ask a much more fundamental question of, well, what is Havdalah trying to do, and therefore should we be standing or should we be sitting? Or, like, why do we blow shofar? So until now, it's, you blow shofar because the Torah says blow shofar. Rav Chaim wants to know what follows. Well, is blowing the shofar part of davening? Or no, it's nothing to do with davening, it's part of the tshuva process, which happens to take place while you're in shofar. Right? It's conceptualizing and trying to break it down to its fine details, really trying to get at what is the point of everything. And you ask these sort of questions and everything. Like almost, look at it this way, look at it that way. And this revolutionized the way of learning because it's allowed people to, again, it doesn't really work for halacha, but it allows you to break things down. I'll give you another analogy. This is his son writes, he says as follows. Sometimes you can have a word that appears in the Talmud. And it appears in multiple places, but can have multiple different meanings. For instance, if I tell you, what does a house mean? You'll say a house means you know, the structure you live in. But say, what if I refer to the house of Rothschild? The structure they live in? No. It's, it's, it's not his house he lives in, but it means the, you know, the, the, the uh, larger Rothschild family and, and what, what they represent. So you could have a word also that appears in, in, in the Torah, in the Talmud, that can have multiple different meanings depending on where you apply it to. So where Chaim did is every time a word appeared, more, uh, a, a larger word, he wants to know, well, does it always mean the same? Or no, perhaps in a different meaning, which can mean totally different things. Does it make sense? Uh, I'll give you more examples. You know, he looked at, let's say, I'm, I'm, hardly in my own learning, I'm learning Masechah's Gittin, the laws of Gittin. And the question is, what is a get? Is a get just a document that says we are divorced, or is it more fundamental? It's only because of a get, now you are divorced, because it does much more than just a regular document. And what are the ramifications of it being one or the other? Well, if you tell me it's, it's a totally new, brand new sort of document that, that actually this creates a divorce, no relation to any other star, any other document, so then, I mean, you as a lawyer, you know, you can't draw any parallels to, well, if in other documents it requires, you know, signatures, maybe it get doesn't, because they're totally different things. Whereas if you, if you say no, it's just a more formal way of concretizing divorce through a regular document that states it, so then you can draw these sort of parallels to all other documents. So Rav Chaim, again, revolutionized this way called the Brisker Method. He takes this, and he has his little, he has his students, and he has a few sons. One son is, as you've noted, the Brisker Ruff. Revelvel Salavechik, or Gitzlik Zev Salavechik. He's one son. He becomes known as the Brisker Ruff. He takes over for his father. World War II breaks out. He escapes. He ends up in Israel. He starts a yeshiva in Israel, and that yeshiva is still there now. I believe his great-grandson is the Rosh Hashiva there. The world of Brisk, if anyone says they went to Brisk... What they mean, the yeshiva brisk, now it's in Yerushalayim, right outside of Meish Arim. You've been to, all been to Meish Arim? Everyone here been to Meish Arim? Have you been to Kikar Shabbos? Kikar Shabbos, is, it's, it's that like, four-way juncture between Meish Arim and Geula. It's where really, a lot of times there are protests happening, it's where all excitement happens in that area. If you make a right and you go up, there's two very, very, very important landmarks. One is Avichayel's, best Danishes you can get in all Yerushalayim. Mark on your calendar, go visit Avichayel's. Make a left. There's the yeshiva brisk. This is the yeshiva of or of of coming from Rabbi Salvechik's uncle, coming from Chaim. Something else that Rav Chaim did. Rav Chaim talked about a lot based off of Chaim of Elijah against the Lithuanian way of learning is that Torah learning is not just to learn so you know so you can practice, but there's a concept of Torah lishma, which we've talked about previously. The concept of learning Torah just for the sake of learning Torah, and that of it, that in and of itself is the goal, ultimate goal to learn just to learn, which Rabbi Salvechik also pushed very heavily. You go to certain you know, Hasidic yeshivas, there's a heavy emphasis on learning halacha. In the world of Brisk, if you walk into Brisk, they, they don't learn halacha. They're learning Gemara. They're learning the Rishonim. 
they learn the commentaries of the Gemara. And not only that, in Brisk now, they don't even learn tractates that are applicable to Zmanazeh nowadays. They're learning the, the, the laws of Kutch and the laws in the base of Megdash. All this is their, their way of saying learning in and of itself has inherent value. That, that you know, if you look even at, in, if you go through the top, top of the, the commandment to learn Torah, there's a command to learn Torah, to know Torah, there's a command as in so you can practice and do follow the halacha, but there's also a command just to learn because that's the way you connect to God. That in a way, you know, I, I believe our salvation sells, sells elsewhere, that this is God's diary. You know, based off, we'll see, it's more of Chabad teaching, we'll see why that, where salvation is quoting Chabad. This is God's diary. You want to know God, you want to come to love God, learn His Torah. Torah in and of itself, there's inherent value to learning Torah. And it becomes, in the world of Bris, there's almost this love affair with Talmud Torah, with learning Torah, this obsession with Torah, and constantly learning Torah. So that's the Bris Grove. The Bris Grove, however, Rav Chaim, yeah, you have a question? Yeah, no, this was, I'm looking at this, the uh, Rav Velvet, the Brisker. Yeah. Uh, there was a shul in Newark on West Kenny Street. It was a big shul. It's called the Brisker Shul. I'm sure there's a connection. It could have been someone who came from Brisk who founded it. A lot, a lot of times when the people came over to America, they would. What do you do? You 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 find other landsmen from your own you know shtetl, and you would create a shul around that. I didn't hear what is Irving is it Irving House. Uh, people, my father. People, my father. People, my father. What's it called? Let me have it here. World of our fathers. Irving House. This book. This is like the foundational book about European Jewry coming to America at the turn of the century. So he documents this a lot, but you can find it, that they would come to America, you find other landsmen, you say, okay, fine, let's start. My great-grandfather came, great-great-grandfather came here, I think we found it in the papers in 1907 or so, then he went back, like many of them did and didn't know he was killed. But he, what did he do when he came here? He started the Miserich Stiebel on the Lower East Side. Still operable till today. I think there was a break at some point, but he found it with other with other people from Ezrich. And they found the little shtibel. So you can find it all over the place. That was just what they did. They they found you know people like them. You had similar menhagim, similar customs, similar tombs, friends, people you know, and you'd found you'd make a shtibel around that. Many of them, they were people from their part of Europe, wherever they were from, Ukraine, wherever it was, went to different places, including Trembley. My grand, my my father's parents did not come into Ellis Island. They came into Philadelphia. Why? Because there was a whole slew of people already settled there from their part of Ukraine. So they knew that. Let's so see. You, you you go to your you go to your friends. You go to your family, and you found. So that's I'm sure that's what the Brisker was. Despite, so again, so we. No hello, how are you? So just go. No email, they knew before they left. Well, that's you also had to get sponsored. Let me know. My yeah. grandfather and his father started to show in the north side. A good as poem? Which one? Huh? A good as poem? A good as poem? No. Um, I don't know. <laughs> so, so, go, so, let's go back to the world of Brisk, Belarus, Lithuania, Beis Halevi, or Yosef Salvejik has a son of Chaim. He has a couple of sons. One is Rav, uh, the Briskarov, the other one is Rav Moshe Salvejik. What does Rav Moshe Salvejik do? So, Yeshiva University, before Yeshiva University, was Yeshiva, it's the Eitz Chaim, and then they merged and became Yeshiva's Rabbeinu Yitzhak Elchanan. They realized in order to gain prestige, to be a real Yeshiva, you have to bring in a European Rosh Yeshiva. So what they did is they brought in a man by the name of the Meichester Eloi. He was, an Eloi is a prodigy, a genius. The Meichester Eloi, I'm forgetting his name right now, there was just a really wonderful write-up about him in Mishpacha magazine. 
not a lot known about him. He was known as he was beyond brilliant. They brought him in. So that when people the Manchester, he was known for all throughout all the yeshivas knew this great Eli, this great Gon. So he comes in, and they say, "Who else can we bring in? Let's bring in our Moshe Salavitchik. What more prestige can you lend to yeshiva when the, you know, the, he's a great, great, great grandson of Chaim of Olajin, who's the founder of all yeshivas. He comes from the house of Brisk. His fathers of Chaim revolutionized the way of learning Torah. Bring her Moshe Salavitchik in. So they bring her Moshe Salavitchik into America. He takes over in, he takes over in yeshiva, well, not yeshiva university yet. Takes over in Ritz Yeshiva Ben Yitzchak Al Chanan. He is and he's there. Rav Moshe has. A bunch of children. One of them is the topic of our shirim, Rav Yosef Dov Salavechik, the oldest one. There is another one, I believe, of Shmuel. He was a doctor in, I think, in mathematics or chemistry. He taught in YU. And then the youngest one was Rav Aaron Salavechik, um, the grandfather of the, oh, please, Rav Meir Salavechik from, from, yes, who ended up in Chicago. Interestingly, by the way, so I, my Chicago connection, the Skokie Yeshiva in Chicago, the Yeshiva there, many of the great Tamid Chachamim who came to America ended up in Skokie for a short time. For whatever reason, in fact, I believe Salavechik was supposed to originally go to Skokie. He wasn't supposed to go to Boston. There was some, and something happened. I don't know the, the whole history of that. So there's Ramosha, then there's the, the Rav, and then and that's we'll, we'll stop there. So that's the, the quick history. So right, Salavitchik, as we're seeing, right, the, we'll call him, he's called, known as the Rav. He's a product of this, of, on this one side of the Brisker dynasty. On the other side, his, his grandfather was Rav Elia Prisoner, Rav Elia Feinstein, who was also a great, 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 known as a great Talmud Chacham in Europe as well. Very, very different. See, the Briskers were known to be Balishita, these Kanayim, these real zealots, anti-Zionist, anti-secular studies, which we see why it's very interesting how Salavitchik took his life. Really, this Torah, Lishma, Torah, 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 only learning Torah. They were also known for their extreme acts of piety. Extreme. Rav Chaim, the, the joke was, the only reason he put a door on the front of his house was because the Rambam says you can only put a, a mezuzah where there's an actual door that opens and closes. And what they're trying to say is his, door, his house was open, the Rambam, to everyone. There were people who lived in his house for weeks and weeks on end. And he just tolerated it. Yeah, you need a place, come stay in my house. There was uh, Ravar and Lichtenstein, you'll see it in the next page, one of the prime Talmudim of Rabbi Salvechik, a son-in-law as well. He, re- he said over once that there was a certain point in his life he was struggling with certain moral issues in the Torah, and why the Torah forbids or permits certain things, and he couldn't understand it. He said, what brought him comfort? It wasn't that he found an answer that worked for him. But he said as follows. Rav Chaim Salavechik was known as the most sensitive person that he would wake up in the middle of the night sometimes just to check his doorstep to see if someone left a child there. A child born perhaps illegitimately, a mother could take care of his child, and it, he was so aware this could happen. He would wake up in the middle of the night to check his doorstep. Someone once saw Rav Chaim used to leave early in the morning. Again, this, think of this. This is, the, this is not just the rabbi in town. This is like the rabbi of all yeshivas. Like, this is like the rabbi. The rabbi. Known everywhere. He, he would wake up. So he woke him up and wake up and put on dirty clothing. And this is the story. That, true story. They followed him out of his house to the woods. We chopped down a tree split the tree, and brought it to some widow's house and put it outside her door. These extreme acts of piety. Again, they don't say the stories about me and you. Maybe they say about you. Now, wake up in the middle of the night to see his doorstep. Putting the, putting the door, not putting the door on the joke was, because he wanted to fill the ramen sheet. Again, another... Put on dirty clothes. That's another dirty Well, he wanted to uh, cut the tree down. Why did he No, I don't think it was anonymous. I think he still wanted to get his clothes dirty. Although he was also known that he didn't care much about his appearances. He, he wanted to give him a nice, a nice rabbinic hat. 
and he, he didn't want it. They gave him a hat, and it was always crushed. I think he saw him, he was so humble, he didn't even see himself as like this. Although other times he, uh, he, he did assert yeah, his control. But either way, the, um, so, so Rav Chaim, again, he, another, another hallmark of brisk is that they try to fulfill every single shita, every single opinion. They try to, they're, they're very, very mocking, they're very stringent when it comes to halacha. Part of it is there's a tremendous uh, awe of heaven, every, like, almost an extreme. So that, 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 that joke about how Rav Chaim would uh, go inside, you know, put the door on just to fulfill the Rambam is twofold. One is his extreme act of piety, and number two is also he wants to fulfill every, every dictum. In fact, he once said, what's the role of a rabbi? Not to teach, but to redress the grievances of the poor, you know, take care of the downtrodden, etc. That's the way he saw himself. So why am I saying this? Oh, so Rav Aaron Lipstein said as follows. I didn't find the answers necessarily I was looking for, for these moral issues. But he said, if Rav Chaim Salavechik, who was so sensitive to the human condition, so sensitive to other humans, who woke up in the middle of the night to check his doorstep, was still able to live with these questions, then there must be an answer. Even if I don't have that answer, the answer must be out there. Which is a very powerful thing. It also, by the way, plays into the, another hallmark of risk, is the idea of the Mesorah of tradition. That if the people in our Mesorah, who we know are great, who we know are wonderful, who we know are the greatest of the great, who are the most intelligent and the most sensitive and fine people, if they were able to find a way to make peace with this, even if I don't have the answer, it allows me to live with the question. And then Ravaran added, then he, he, he quoted someone, some other person, he didn't say who it was, who apparently made a whole big hullabaloo about a certain issue. He goes, I know this person, he doesn't wake up in the middle of the night to check his doorstep. And again, and his point was that when you have such great people, and they can live with the question, or at least they have an answer. Even if you don't have the answer, you have to learn to live with the questions. That was brisk. It's extreme intellectual precision when it comes to learning. Extreme intellectual precision, really defining words. This ability to have sensitivity and think about others, the, the desire to go to an extreme when it comes to halacha. Again, it's a very extreme, if you notice. Brisk was known for these extremes, like pushing away all Zionism, embracing total Torah. You know, I think the rub at some point tried to mollify and smooth out these edges a little bit in terms of the, the extreme. But it was this real extreme. And then also, when it came to faith, this imunapshuta, this like, almost like childlike faith, not asking questions, always. Believing in, this, the, 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 believing in just a, a simple imuna. And anyway, salvation is a product of this, but it's also a product of his mother, or of Elie Prujan, who was a totally different, a totally different world. They read secular literature, they read novels, his mother was well-read, his mother, I believe, spoke multiple languages, while his grandfather was a tremendous Tamil Chacham, he knew what was going on in the world. So much so that Rabbi Salavechuk's aunt, she wrote an a autobiography, and a biography, I guess, about her family, and she writes that when her father first married her mother, he, he ran away. He, he, was, he couldn't understand what was going on there. What are they talking about, second lit- Russian literature? What's going on here? I believe he ran back to Rafaim because I, I can't live there. It's a totally different house. Totally, what's going on here? So you have these two influences, influences now on Rabbi Salvechik. On the one hand, you have a father who's still giving him this brisker derech of learn, 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 learn. Everything else is trace. And then you have his mother who's saying, read a novel, learn Russian. So both these are pulling at, at the rubs. The rub is born in 1903. From 19... From the year, let me, I have the exact year here, excuse me. Um, in, sorry, a second here. In 1913, so he was 10 years old until 1920, they moved to Kaslavitz, which was a Chabad, almost a Chabad-run town. Mainly Chabad, although they had a history of, they would bring in a Litvish, as in a Lithuanian rabbi to be the rough. This Chabad left an indelible impact on him, first of all, because he, his first teacher was a Chabad rabbi who I believe later on in life he reconnected to. 
And only when his mother found out he was learning too much Chabad, she told her father to take him out of yeshiva. And that was the last time he went to yeshiva. Which is fascinating to think about it. The Rav's only learning in a formal yeshiva setting was in was when in Chabad Cheder. And until the end of his life, he always he quoted Chabad constantly. He quoted the Tanya. And he was very impacted by not just the intellectualism of the Chabad, but also the emotional world of Chabad. Because Lithuanian Jews, and, and anyone here has even introduced to them, they're known to be very cold. They say, Kalta Litvak. You know, cold Litvak. Not very, very intellectual, not very emotional. Which, by the way, they're very emotional. They're, just, they're very, also very tenuous. They, they hide it down. What do you say? You've heard it. No, my family's heard it. So you know, it's a, they're, they're, they, don't, they don't show emotions the same way. The Torah is very intellectual. Chabad gave him this feeling of, you know, the Hasidus feeling, this warmth feeling. So he's in this town. His father, they take him out of yeshiva in, 19, in 1913. He's, he's, uh, he's born in 1903, so he's seven years old or so. Oh, sorry, ten years old. So the next almost ten years, he learns exclusively with his father. So his father was known as this great goan. He learns exclusively with his father. These are the ten years where he really trained him in the Briskaderech. And his way of learning, he trained, he spent exclusively learning Torah, getting the bulk of his, uh, I guess, his knowledge came in these years. And his father knew exactly what it was. It was known throughout the world. Rav Chaim was this brilliant person. His son Rav Moshe was brilliant. And now this prodigy was born. Everyone knew about Rav Yosherber, Yosherber, whoever they called him, Yosef Dosalvechik. Everyone knew he was going to be the future of, I'm going to use an anachronism, Haredi Jewry. Because he was, again, this just brilliant, brilliant kid. I, there was a story they said over. I don't remember exactly the story, how they said it over. But basically, it comes down to when the Rub was three years old, he was playing with marbles. And a marble got stuck inside a little crack in the floor. So he goes over to the water bucket, pours it in, then the marble floats up, he takes it out. And he had a, three, he had a three-year-old. You know, he records it. He was just this brilliant, brilliant kid. And he was more than just brilliant, he was wildly creative. So he was the future. His father knew exactly what he was doing. And also, by the way, not being in a formal yeshiva setting, his primary teacher becomes his father. And he speaks a lot about, again, when we talk about Masora and tradition, it's family Masora, but also Masora you get from your teacher and the importance of having a Rebbe, of a teacher who can te- give, give over not just the text, but more important than that is the flavor and, what's go- and, and the feeling of what the tradition is trying to transmit. So this is the, the rough. Now, it seems that at some point his father recognized, probably convinced by his mother, that in the world in which they were now living, you know, 1920s, one could not just be a rabbi and only know Torah. And so the Rav did something radical, something that people were shocked at. And again, he wanted to do it as well. He travels to Warsaw to go to college. And he was self-taught everything else, which was radical. How can the Brisker Rav's not, no, and they're, they're Chaim's grandson going to college. What's going to happen? Secular. secular college. And then he goes to the University of Berlin, where he enrolls in a PhD program and spends six years getting a PhD. PhD in the works of, of Kant through the Marble School of, of Hermann Kohn. Hermann Kohn is a great philosopher. I spent a lot of time on him when, in, when I was in Revel, when my, my own, not the easiest. He himself was actually, at one point, it was Orthodox, or again, these are anachronisms. When he was a committed Jew, then he was not, and by the end of his life, he came, I think the story goes, he got up to speak like a, a dinner, honoring him at 70, and he made a bracha, so someone goes, oh, you've, you've returned? You just returned? You just became a Balshuva? And he said, it happened many years ago. That's a story along those lines. Herm, so, that's Herman Cohn. If I recall the, no, leave it at that. Okay, fine. So, he spent his time in the thought of Kant and Herman Cohn, why these people, we'll explain in a minute. Apparently, he first wanted to get his PhD in the Rambam, 
but there was no one who, who was willing to, who was an expert enough in the Rambam who was going to be his, his advisor on that. So he, he goes to thought of Herman Cohn, and that's where he spends the bulk of his time. In those formative years, I'd say, of secular education, a couple of things happened. One is he met his wife. He marries this woman, Tonya Salavechik, Lewitt Salavechik, who was not from a rabbinic family. Everyone expecting a rabbinic family. No. So he, and he had a very, very you know, strong, close connection with his wife. And he, he writes something the Rav was also very self-revelatory in terms of in, in his writings. You don't find this a lot of, especially with the way or Shashivas, he talks a lot about what he goes through in life. So he talks about after his wife passed away, it was next year he was preparing shear. He gave a famous yard set shear for his father. It was a two to four hour shear. Mm-hmm. People were, he was more than just being a Thomas Hockham, he was a riveting orator. Now, I think Rav Schechter, one of his prime students, said he was an actor. He knew how to get the crowd going. He knew how to get the crowd excited. He was telling stories, and he was, just, he was very entertaining, which is part of, you know, you don't always find that with geniuses. Sometimes, you know, I, I was once talking to a certain rabbi. He said the difference, he goes, they're wholesale rabbis and they're retail rabbis. So what do you mean? He goes, they're the wholesale rabbis. They know a lot, but they can't really produce. So they kind of stay back in the warehouse with all the information. I go to them. I don't know a lot, but I know I'm retail. I'm good at, I'm good at, at giving it over. So he was both. He knew how to give over a really wonderful shear. So he talks about, he gets the shear, and he's like, normally, what do I do? I call my wife, and I say, let's go over the shear. What are your thoughts? And she helps me refine my thought and crystallize it, because I didn't have her this year. No, he, he had a very, very close connection with his wife. They founded a school together in Boston called Maimonides. She, had, she herself had a PhD in education, so she was very invested, in, not only in the school and like the education, but also her daughter was talking about how like, she wanted to know what was on the menu. What was kids eating? Were they eating healthy enough food? She was like, very, very invested in the school. But again, I'm jumping ahead of myself. I'm sorry, I'm all over the place, but there's a lot to say. It's interesting that his father married a woman that was secular. Well, she wasn't secular. She just had a, she, she she came from a family that believed in, in, I guess, a broader education. But it wasn't like going to university. This was radical for for them. So he meets his wife. Another thing that happens is he meets he meets Berlin Jewry. Berlin Jewry is very different. You know, the East and Europe, West Europe. Let's put it that way. <coughs> Western Europe is much more, excuse me, Eastern Europe is much more this Lithuanian type of Torah only, less educated in the world of the secular world, much more about, and old, tradition is Masora. Berlin is the seat of the Enlightenment, of this, you know, the cosmopolitan Jew, Moses Mendelssohn, you know, names we've known, which means that the Jews in Berlin as well were much more educated. In terms of sec- in the world, in the secular world, it's interesting to note, by the way, fresh was the recording. At a certain point, you also you stop finding the first-rate scholars that you have in, in Eastern Europe in, in in Berlin. Almost like there was a, to some extent, you still find it, but there was, they sacrificed the depth that you have of Torah only of this gedolim for this broader approach. Which one's correct? I'm not going to get into. I don't know, but you have these. You know, Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch. Heard of Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch? Samson Rafal Hirsch. Pioneer is called Torah and Derech Heretz. The idea that you could know Torah, but also Derech Heretz, you have to know secular wisdom. There was academic, the academic study of, or the scientific study of Judaism, which was mainly pushed by people who were anti-religious to try to really get down to the history of Judaism. And oftentimes, again, it was an anti-religious push, but it also became, even in the, the world, the Jewish world, the, the traditional world, the halachic world, if you will, they also get into this, getting PhDs in academic Talmud, in academic Bible. Biblical criticism. You start finding a lot of this in this in, in Berlin. So the Rav gets exposed to people who, for the first time, they they didn't want to just like his mother. They happened to read Russian literature, but they actually give me one second. They actually studied this lichatchila as part of their life. We believe this is important. Yeah. Was that the German jewelry? Yes. Or the basis of uh, 
So again, the reform movement happens in, Ger- in, in German Jewry, but you even find that within the religious realm, people start taking you know, the best of all, going to university. You have people like Rosham Shavol Hirsch, or Israel Hildesheimer. We'll meet, uh, for those who come Sunday, a man by the name of Chaim Heller, who was like, the Rav's friend. It's very interesting to think about. You think of the Rav, this great rabbi, he had a very close friend, of Chaim Heller. Also, his rabbi, Chaim Heller, was a top, first-rate scholar, also known as the, the Eloy from Warsaw. But he got a PhD in biblical criticism. He was, you know, it was in, in, in the academic Bible. He spoke many languages. He was, again, he was there. He had a yeshiva there, uh, based Medjish Elyon, I think it was called. You had uh, Yechil Yaakov Weinberg. Yechil Yaakov Weinberg was an interesting person because he was known as a Shrude Eish. What is it? Anyone know what the word Shrude means? How about Eish? Anyone know what the word Eish means? Shrude means remnant, the remnant of the fire. That, that was the, the work he wrote, Shiles and Chuvos. Shiles and Chuvos were these letters he wrote, the remnants of the fire, because he wrote them after the war, or during the war and after the war. And these were the, the remnants from what he, the world that was lost. So he actually as well came from like, the Rav from Eastern Europe. He shows up in Berlin for whatever reason that he had to get there, not for now, it's not a sure about him, and he's shocked by what's going on there. Because you call this religion, you call this religious Jews, going to university, how could they? And you start reading a couple of years later, they go, well, actually, I kind of see why you need it. You need to be able to refute the, uh, the, 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 the heretics, you need to get a job. But at the end of it, he's like, Rav Hirsch is amazing. This is unbelievable. He joins, becomes a rector in the academy of a real, I think, of a real Hildesheimer. He, he's, he's all gung-ho for this. So he has this, this, this transformation. So the rub's there. While the Rebbe is learning in the University of Berlin, guess who else is there? Ready for this? Lubavitch Rebbe. Lubavitch Rebbe's there. The, the story is he comes back to his apartment one night and finds Lubavitch Rebbe sitting there. They, became, they have a lifelong connection there. I believe Nechama Leibowitz was there. And Rav Yitzhak Hutner. Anyone hear Rav Yitzhak Hutner? Rav Hutner. Rav Hutner. So he spends some time wandering. And he also was kind of in and out there for a little while as well. So the Rav also makes these sort of friends in the University of Berlin. He gets a PhD, again, in, in Herman Cohen's interpretation of Kant. Why this is so important is because what also what it did was it focused the Rav, in a way, on what became a, taking the Brisker method from what he, as I mentioned, the Brisker method is very much, there's two sides to everything, right? Is show for about tshuva, to remind us to do tshuva, or maybe no, it's actually, it's a way of davening. It's, you know, the Rub talks about how chuva, how Shofar is when we, we just, we feel so, you know, upset and in turmoil. We don't know how to talk to God. We kind of just want to scream out. And the Shofar is that like, primordial scream of like man screaming, screaming to God, not knowing how to express themselves. It's a scream. Pain, agony, wants to come closer. It's a, it's a, it's a tefillah in a way. On the other hand, no, the Shofar is just a reminder to do to, to chuva. Two ways of looking at everything. Both of them enhance one, they enhance each other, by the way. Right? The Rub takes this and applies it to life as well. And in the world of philosophy, he starts looking at everything two ways as well. You know, there's a famous essay, which we, we could have done last week, where the Rav asks as follows. If you recall from the Kriya Torah last week, this is his essay, The Lonely Man of Faith. Adam, the story of Adam being created, is in chapter 1, and again in chapter 2. Anyone notice this? It comes up twice. In the world of biblical criticism, there's a question of why would God repeat the story twice? What's going on here? For the Rav is no, because actually, there are two different Adams. He calls them Adam 1 and Adam 2. Adam won the first one. The story is much more. He talks about a person who, in these two typologies, because again, it's always just typologies here. Are you with me? Following? The Rebbe says as follows: You have one type of person who they're much more scientifically, scientifically minded, much more mathematically minded. When they approach the world, the world is like, how can we fix it? How can we utilize the world to become noble, to become dignified, to create, to express our creativity, to build things? 
You know, it's very you know, there's a certain dignity. The fact that you look at you know the New York skyline. Ever ever think about that? Like imagine standing seeing the New York skyline with all the buildings. Like there's something unbelievable to think about how we humans went from hunter-gatherers to having this magnificent city. And not just like a, these buildings with subways running underneath, with electricity running through, with pipe, with, with water running. It's a, there's something dignified about man conquering the world. The Kipshua. God places man into the garden and says, conquer the world. Guard it and conquer it. That's at Adam 1. When he sees things, he wants to comprehend them. He wants to, he wants to comprehend and figure out how it's going on and how we can build with it. Adam 2, the second one, is less about comprehending the world and more of someone who is in the way he, he reads into the, into the text, and this, I don't want to get detra- detracted on it, but it's someone who looks at the world and kind of recoils a little bit and says, there's something more. I want to transcend it. I want to move beyond it. It's not about taking the world and, and, and uh, conquering the world. It's about taking the world and kind of saying, like, I'm just a little puny human being, and I want to transcend it and come closer to the Creator. And in a way... You know, the, I guess the synthesis of the two is kind of like all of us. We have our moments when we, are, we feel that need to, the dignity of conquering and then the, almost the dignity of kind of a bowing our head in submission. So the rub does this as well in the world of philosophy. But more than that, what the Brisker method allowed him to do, and again, he, it happens as well in the, in, in the world of philosophy, is to live with contradiction and to live with tension. To recognize that not everything is simple. And he was one of the first rabbis who, and I, I, you know, in the world, in the world of, of this is... This book is a wonderful book that goes through a lot of his thought and goes through a lot of his major essays. So again, I'm sorry I'm not in such a I'm not as ordered as usual. There's so much to say, but they point that as follows: that oftentimes it's like how can we how can we make things work? You know, there seems to be tension. Let's resolve the tension. For the rub is no, we can live with tension. To recognize that man suffers. To recognize life is hard. To recognize that not everything has an answer. And the rub really writes about this a lot. I mean, he did not have an easy life. He had poverty. He went through a war. He writes about, you know, he survived the war. He came, he came here again. He came here. He became the rabbi, chief rabbi in Boston before the war, but he lost everything. He lost his, not just his family. His parents were here and his siblings were here, but he lost his world. Again, it's something about someone who's so connected to the Mesorah, to his family, he lost it all. It was devastating for him. He writes about in the Kinos how, like, the loss of European jewelry for him, the loss of Lithuanian jewelry was, a dev- was devastating. It was beyond devastating. It was, it was traumatic for him. So he, he writes about that as well, but also something else that he pushed, again, the ability to live with this tension, we'll see more of it in a second, but he, he approached Judaism from a phenomenological perspective. Phenomenology is the, is the idea that instead of starting from, from point one, point, you know, from, from one, from like nothing, let's build up from here, take, uh, assume certain things are true, and now from there we can build we can build a world out of it. So instead of saying, okay, is, you know, did God create the world? God not create the world? No. Assume there are certain postulates that aren't going to move, right? Well, can, once you assume that, so now you're working within a system. You can build you can build a whole philosophy out of it. Does that make sense? It's like, it's basically it's approaching the world instead of being very almost philosophical in the way of like this meta. It's like looking at what the reality is and working based off the reality. So I'll give you a couple examples for that. The Rub writes, and this is, comes from Rabbi Ruben Ziegler's introduction to the Rub's thought. He said, unlike medieval philosophers who assert that the existence of evil in the world is merely an illusion, how can evil, right, how can evil exist? If God is all good and all knowing and all powerful, why would there be evil? And then you have the medieval philosophers giving a whole host of reasons. Really, it's not evil, it's an illusion. If you know everything, you realize it's not really evil. Or if God, X, Y, or Z, God has to allow for X. You have all the answers right in the, in the, all the answers the medievals give over. Some of them are really good, some are not so good, some speak to us, some don't. For the Rub, listen to this. For the Rub, it, Evil, um, 
That evil, it's not that evil does not really exist from God's perspective, but rather for salvation treats evil as an undeniable human experience. Says the Rub, I don't really care whether you can tell me evil exists or it doesn't exist. Is it an illusion? Is it not an illusion? Phenomenologically, from my perspective, when evil happens, when I'm in pain, it's real. So if, again, if you want to make the philosophy cohere and try to answer the great question of theodicy, of why the good things happen to bad people, yeah, when we're in the classroom, that works. But no one goes over to a mother who just lost a child and goes, oh, don't you know, it's not really painful because God, did, God didn't really, did the good. that's not what you do. There's real pain there. And the way you treat with real pain is to recognize there's real evil. And then for, for the Salvation, and he writes this in a, in a letter, he goes, I don't care whether evil exists or doesn't exist. From my perspective, evil exists. And the question we have to then say is not why does it exist, because we're never going to have that answer, but rather, where do we go from here? How do we let it impact us? How can we grow from it, or how can we experience it? It's less about why, but more of what. And it's not just that as well. He says as follows. Um, he's not interested in describing the attributes of God. You read some of the, the medieval philosophers, you know, is God like this, or is God like that? But rather, man's relationship to God. At the end of the day, whether God has this attribute or that attribute, we are just mere mortal men trying to come close to God. So what's our relationship to God? And that's what he writes about. Um, not the effects of Torah on the metaphysical realm. You read through, again, why learn Torah? Why learn Torah? Well, you know, when you, when you learn Torah, you create angels who then allow God to, to bring God's presence into the world. No, it's not about that at all. Rather, he writes about its influence on the human personality. Given his focus on human experience and the fact that naturally the human experience with Royce of Age is most feeling to his own, he uses a lot of his own experience in the philosophy. So again, you follow what he's doing? It's a lot less about these big meta questions and more of answering those questions. Can it get answered? More of our human experience. How do we perceive God? Not what's God like in the, philosophy, in the classroom of philosophy, which I think most of us don't necessarily find so interesting, but how do we perceive God? Not how does davening work in the greater scheme of things, but how does man approach God? Man's relationship to God through Tzvilo. And it's very much like that, but I believe it's actually, this as well comes from the world of risk. Because so, listen to this as follows. There's two ways. Salvation writes about this in another very famous essay called Halachic Man, which is, there's two ways that we can approach everything in life. Again, everything's two ways. But you'll see this. The world of the, more of the capitalist is, we have this world where you look around, this is the world, it's full of temptation. The world of the Mesil Sisharm, the Ramachal, one of the great capitalists, we are at war with our evil inclination. Our job in this great war, in the great battle, is to overcome so we can transcend and come closer to God. To transcend this world. To transcend the physicality. To push it away so we can come closer to God. That's one approach. In the world of Pirkeiavos, it's this world is but a troclin, just the, the antechamber to the world to come. Why are we in this world? In order to cure merit, to get, to get Sechar in the world to come, to get our place in the world to, in the world to come. That's one approach. Works for many people. Elements which work for all of us. For the rough, and the Lithuanian Jew, he goes, that's not what it is. God created a world. God gave us Torah. God gave us mitzvos. We're supposed to, not, not, we're supposed to live in this world. We're supposed to bring God into this world. So rather than trying to transcend this world, it's about bringing God into this world. Keep doing halacha. Keeping the halacha, says the rough, the, 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 uh, the, the Talmud tells us that once the base of Migdash was destroyed, when the temple was destroyed, God says, I only exist within the four cubits of halacha. In the, you do, when you keep halacha, when you live a halachic life, you bring God into your life. Less about transcending this world, but more about bringing God into this world. So much so, for the Rav, he assiduously avoids quoting this Mishnah Pirkei as we just mentioned, of this world is an antechamber to the world to come. But rather, there's another Mishnah Pirkei that is, Yafasha Achas Olam Hazem Olam Haba. It's one moment in this world of doing Torah, 
of keeping mitzvot is more exciting and more important than all the world to come. Which is a totally different approach. But it's more, much more focused in this world. Which I think it also plays a role in what he's saying over here. Human experience is important. Human experience, we have to validate it because this world is so important. It's not about transcending this world, but it's about moving to, it's about bringing God into this world. Any questions, thoughts, comments, observations? Okay. Make sense? We good? How much time we have? Okay. Oh my gosh. Oh gosh. Okay. So then the Rav, let's, let's, let's go quickly. The Rav ends up in Boston. He, he's brought into Boston to be the chief rabbi of Boston. It was a period, by the way, he, was a, he wanted to, he put his hat in the ring to be the chief rabbi of Israel. Ultimately, he lost it. He, they offered him chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. And then I believe in the 60s, they offered to him again. At that point, he goes, no, my job is to be a teacher and not a politician. You know, that's when he, he ends up in Boston and then his father dies suddenly. He was a young man in 41, I believe, at which point he takes over his father's position in in Yeshiva University, again, everything had a bit of a, a little contentious. You know, some people said he should, some he shouldn't. He takes it over where he ends up teaching for the next 40 years. He wrote a tremendous amount. I printed out the bibli- a bibliography. It's not complete. I didn't give it to you. This is just a big, it's 40 pages, so I didn't want to give it out to you, of just literally the articles and letters and, and svarim that he wrote. A tremendous, tremendous writer. A lot of what he wrote actually was, at, only at, was published after he passed away. He put up these books, I had them over here. I bought a bunch of them recently for the show. On Tfila, uh, the, the, um, the emergence of ethical man about uh, what it means to be human, out of the whirlwind, essays on mourning and suffering and the human condition, essays on family relationships. So they've been putting these out, and uh, someone interviewed Tova Lichtenstein, his daughter, and she said, what, you know, where are these coming from? She said, oh, my father was always writing, and so when he dies, he, wants them to be, he wanted them to be published. So he teaches there until 85. At 85, he stepped down due to illness. I, no one ever said it explicitly, but it seems like he had some sort of dementia or Alzheimer's because, again, at the end of his life, he definitely didn't remember. They talk about how he, just, he was so, you know, one of the things that he loved was Yom Kippur. So he'd constantly ask, is it Yom Kippur? Is it Yom Kippur? Um, he was, even when he was very sick, I and mean, you spend your, your day, your entire life learning. So even he was, didn't remember things, but he was still able to learn some sense. Again, he comprehended I don't think so. But he was just, that was just what his, where his mind was. They, they say a story, I don't, I don't know if it's true. In, you went to YU. You know Moss. The building must. No, the morgue. Sorry, morgue. Morgan Stern. The morgue is the dormitories. It's on. It's between. It's between the old YU building, which is now MTA, and Reuben Hall, the and the the uh, and Belfour Hall. There's a storm, so he had an apartment down there because again he lived in New, in Boston. He commuted three days a week. Allegedly, the story goes again. I don't know if it's a true story, but it's still funny. That a bunch of guys are really rowdy at like three in the morning throwing a party. There's a knock on the door. And right, Salvatic opened the door wearing his, you know, his, his night robe. And he looks at them and he's like, it's three in the morning. How can you be so loud? Don't you know people are trying to learn? <laughs> Is it true? I don't know. But again, that, that was, so that was the, his, world, his, his life was learning. He also had a sense of humor. He, he, he did have a sense of humor. Ravarin Khan, his Rashid Mwayu said that one time, one time, how did the story go? I think one time he was a rub shaman, he was, a, he was assistant. And in the Shira, the Rav, when he would learn, every time he learned it, he'd learn everything like he's the first time he was learning it. And he spent hours, he demanded from his students. He demanded. If you said the wrong thing in class, he would yell at you. Because he believed that you've you got to work hard. And he demanded of himself. He'd spend hours and hours and hours preparing each lecture. Because, again, going over it. So apparently he got stuck on something once in class. And then he adjourned the class. And, like, two days later, he didn't give class. Or Khan knocks on the door, also, like, 12 o'clock at night. And the opens the door and I screams to him and goes, it was a Rashi, it was a Rashi. Like, that was what was on his mind. Like, that. So he ends up in Boston. In Boston, he's the, he takes over the, I don't know if it's chief rabbi of Boston. He, comes, he takes an important position. 
One of the first things that happens is he gets into a fight with the local butcher union, where he felt they were, they were doing certain things that were not correct um, in terms of cautious-wise, and it could be money-wise as well. So he put his foot down. It became very acrimonious. It ended up going, they, they, they brought it to court, and they sued him. I don't know if what it was for, for um, defaming them. I'm not sure what it was. But apparently the judge looked at the rub at one point and said, I've never seen someone so honest as you. Like he was just so impressed with his honesty and integrity. Uh, that also left a big impact on him. But the first thing that happens is you get to fight in the rabbinate. And again, it was a, totally, it was a, it was a schmuck. They were, they were doing things that were wrong. So he's there, and he ends up also living this dual, these two lives. He had the world of, yeshi, of the yeshiva in, 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 um, in New York, and the world in Boston where he, was, he, had this, he had a high school, and he had an elementary school. He had, for a short time, he had a, a, uh, also a postgraduate colo. But it was mainly, it was a different type of crowd. It was, you know, Balabatim. People didn't have the same education, or didn't have any education. And he would give them shir, but a totally, a totally different type of shir, different level, much more into drush. And he had these two worlds. My father-in-law, so after his wife, it was in, in 69, I believe, or 60, 68, he lost his mother, his brother, and his and wife in the same year. This is after he, had, he himself had cancer a few early, years earlier. He moves in with his, son, his daughter and son-in-law, the Torskis, on... It was on Addington Road in Boston, which was ne- next door to my in-laws, my father-in-laws. We grew up. My father-in-law said he remembers that these students walking with him, and he's talking, talking. And then he follows a neighbor, so he did in the house. He'd close the door to students and sit down on the couch, go like, oh. He loved the students. It was a totally different side of him. He was much calmer, much more gentle. It was a different side to the rub in Boston. Again, he had these two, these two, these two worlds. So that was in Boston. That was in Boston. Where does this leave us? We haven't even begun to really get to the surface of who the rub is. Oh, we touched a lot of it. So what I want to do now. But next week, I really want to start with the thought of the Rav. Is, and you see again why he'd be so interesting, because he, he breaks from the family tradition as well, and he goes to university, and why you? And he becomes a Zionist. And again, his Zionism is not necessarily the Zionism preached now, necessarily. He did not believe that Israel was, which we'd say, the racist, the first flower of our redemption. But he believed very strongly in the importance of the state of Israel, so much so he authored this essay over here, Fate and Destiny, called Dodi Dofik. We'll go over some point, hopefully, this year. He makes a very strong case. A uh, theological case for the state of Israel that it can't be all these miracles are happening that God's not involved. Again, you think about it. Here's the this was he was supposed to be the ultimately take over the Aguda. He was supposed to or Aguda was I guess more Zionist. He was supposed to take over the Haredi Jewry, the Brisker, and in, he opens his first book, uh, Halachic Man, with the words of his father, with the words of, of excuse me of Yosef. Joseph was in Mitzrayim. It's the, 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 the Rashi tells us he saw the Mustiyuk no Shel Aviv from the window when he was about to sin with Aishas Potiphar, the wife of Potiphar, it said he saw his father's image in front of him. Right? That, that's the, the image. You know, it means to say that he, he remembered that, how can I do this? I come from the house of Yosef. The Rav opens up his first work quoting that. Almost to say, like, I see my father who wouldn't necessarily approve. He breaks it. He, he, he goes his own way. In fact, this, this, this picture here on the page, this is the Rav giving a, a Talmud class to women in Stern College. The very first Talmud class to women in Stern College. And that wasn't done before. Women did not learn Talmud before, before this. Uh, at least not in a formal setting, and the Rav believes in it for reasons that we won't get into now, but we'll touch on this year. So, in the few remaining minutes we have, we don't really have any remaining minutes. <laughs> we have th- three minutes? Or everyone, anyone have to go? Three minutes. So, uh, obviously, I'm not that articulate, but the most articulate spokesman of anything was Rabbi Sachs. So they put out a sitter a couple years ago called the Koran Musot Harav Sitter. It's the thought of the Rabbi Salavechik. Not the Sachs sitter, but the thought of Rabbi Salavechik. Rabbi Sachs wrote one of the most magnificent outstanding introductions to the thought of to who Rabbi Salavechik was. There's no better way to capture it in the words of Rabbi Sachs. I'm not going to read it with an English accent. 
Only because I have some dignity. Okay. Occasionally in the history of the Jewish encounter with God, and I encourage you to take this home and read it yourselves. Occasionally in the history of the Jewish encounter with God, a thinker arises who lets us see our ancient tradition in a new light. Like a poet describing an emotion we instantly recognize, but never before were able to articulate. When this happens within a faith, old texts reverberate with new meanings. Acts we performed unthinkingly a thousand times stand revealed in their depth and power, as if for the first time we begin to understand why those who came before us did as they did, and we and the tradition are renewed. Powerful, powerful idea. Right, Joseph Salvation, the most prof- profound Orthodox thinker of the 20th century, was such a man, ostensibly Rosh Hashiva in the classic mold, where he gave shir in YU. Many swarm on the Shi'urim for 40 years. People who only study philosophy or don't, don't study Talmud are missing the bulk of who the Rav was. Because ultimately he spent most of his days learning, even though he had a PhD, learning and teaching, and teaching Talmud. And he has some wonderful things to say. Many, I try to te- give over a lot of that in my other Shi'urim. You're here Friday night, you're Friday night, you're here. Well, I'll quote the Rav again, because that was the bulk of who he was. But again, I think the key of a real Talmud Chachm is the ability to take all that Talmud and bring it to reality in other areas as well which is what he did. Let it inform your entire life and your entire outlook on life and everything that becomes informed because of that. He came from a famous dynasty of outstanding Talmudic teachers. He was also an archaeologist of the soul who excavated deep beneath the surface of the religious encounter to bring back fragments long buried and the surface surface of everyday life. In his teachings and writings, we encounter terms not often found in Jewish thought before his time. He spoke of conflict, struggle, and defeat, the tragic destiny of man and woman, of faith, whose soul is battered by storm within and incomprehension by the world outside. The person of faith is constantly in motion, tossed between rapture and despair, caught in an endless dialectic of thesis and antithesis without a a mediating synthesis. I think in a way that's that's the human experience. There are moments we feel this connection, and moments we don't feel this connection. There's moments we're like, we live in this crazy world, does anyone understand that I'm coming from a a 5,000-year-old tradition? That, has, that says something different, has different approaches perhaps than what the world wants to push on us now. And that what the world is saying now, we all know tomorrow is going to say something different. And yesterday said something different. And that there's a certain anchor to what we have, but how come not only are we not appreciated for it, but we're looked down on for it? The lonely man of faith is what the Rub talked about as well. A certain loneliness coming from that tradition and trying to not just exist, but participate and give to the world at large. The life of faith is simple only to the simple. Those who have ventured deeper know there's rarely easy or harmonious. That is rarely easy or harmonious. Rabbi Soloveitchik was a mind forever voyaging through the strange seas of thought alone. And that's his introduction, the introductory paragraph to the Rub. And I encourage, you, I encourage you to go and read A lot of what I said today is found in this. I kind of broke it down, but trying to use the biography of his life, which I didn't get through, wasn't so successful, to break down of how, who the Rub was. Just a quick review of who he was, and we'll pick up next time with his thought. And again, as, he, as I noted, because he believes so much in the human experience, a lot of his thought contains a lot of his biography as well. He comes from a very big family. On one side is the Brisker dynasty, which left, again, you can't, you can't learn nowadays. You can't learn Torah without encountering the world of Brisk and what, the, way, the, the mark they left. The other side is Elliot Prusin, the Feinsteins. By the way, he was a uh, uh, first cousin once removed, I believe, to Moshe Feinstein, but I don't think it was from the Feinstein side. You know, his, his, grandfather, his mother was a Feinstein. I think it was... There was, a, there was to his mother's mother or something like that, or his grandfather's sister. Okay, fine. He then, he, go, he, go, he comes to America. He goes to, he go, eventually enters YU. He ordains thousands of students. And much of his thought is influenced by this, a way of looking at the world and being okay with conflict, being okay with dissonance, being okay with tension, 
And because that, in a way, is the human condition. That we live with, we don't live these synthesized lives. We live with a certain tension. We live with a certain sense. He called the lonely man of faith, uh, a loneliness, an inability necessarily to, to, to always harmonize what is going on with the world at large and ourselves, with ourselves, ourselves and God. And that's okay. And that is the rub. And I'm looking forward to what's going to be hopefully a year of the rub's thought beginning next week with Parshas Lachlan. Give me a second. Turn this off. Yes, he had a son. We we've mentioned him a couple of times.